Gracious Father, we come to gather in your name needing to hear from you, needing your comfort, needing your encouragement. And also, Father, though we don't necessarily like it, we also need to hear your, your rebuke and the way that you would challenge us uh, to live uh, under your lordship. So, Father, we pray that you would be powerful at work in all these ways this morning in our hearts, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Somebody uh, remarked to me a little while back that as he's gotten older and less mobile and not as strong, he's just aware of how vulnerable he is as, as he's out and about. Uh, and there are many times when we are aware of our vulnerability, aren't there? Not necessarily afraid, but just aware that we're vulnerable. Uh, as you can well see, uh, I'm not somebody who goes to the gym. I don't have particularly big muscles. And sometimes when I'm out in the street and I happen to be, it's the night time and I'm in an alleyway and the only other person there is a big guy who obviously does go to the gym, I'm just aware that this gentleman could knock my block off if he wanted to. I'm not necessarily afraid, I realise he's not going to do that, but I'm aware of my vulnerability. But if you'd like to talk about a sense of vulnerability, spare a thought for Jesus' disciples as he spoke to them the night before he died. He'd been reminding them that they're following a master who's been hated and will be killed by the world. Take a moment to process what he says in verse 2. Uh, this is John 16, verse 2, the part that's printed for us in our, in our outline. And in the second half of the verse, Jesus says, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they're offering a service to God. Now, there's something to make you feel vulnerable. There are people out there who have such a powerful ideological justification for destroying you that they will feel it's a service to God. The way that uh, the, the first people to feel that way about Christians would have been certain Jews uh, who viewed Christians as traitors to Judaism. Now, you could think of Saul uh, before his conversion and before he became St. Paul, standing there giving approval to the death of Stephen. Uh, later on, there were the Roman persecutors who viewed Christians as traitors to the Roman gods. And uh, famously, of course, we know about Nero, who would have the Christians destroyed in the most brutal ways in the arena. Uh, and, and everybody, frankly, loved it. Uh, today we have cancel culture. Uh, and we could think about, for example, the Victorian doctor, uh, who, uh, because of certain social media posts he put out at the time of the same-sex marriage plebiscite, uh, was hounded and brought before a tribunal in Victoria. And uh, in spite of the fact there had never been a single complaint against him by any of his patients, uh, they actually suspended his license to practice medicine in Victoria, and he has now been without his livelihood for something like four years and counting. Uh, the point is, I think any reasonable person would see that uh, what's been meted out on this particular doctor is vastly out of proportion to whatever perceived offence was committed through the social media posts. And yet, those who have 
chased him and brought this about. Uh, There's no compassion about the loss of livelihood, the loss of his ability to support his family uh, because of the the great ideological trophy that is there uh, in having him punished for what he did. See, it's one thing to feel vulnerable because there's somebody nearby in the alleyway that's got big muscles and could knock your block off. But it's another thing again to know that there are ideas held by real people that provide them with a powerful justification for destroying you. That is vulnerability. That's the situation that Jesus was explaining to his disciples. And uh, to compound the vulnerability, as we've noted, Jesus is going away. He's leaving them to this vulnerable situation and he is going to his father. Well, now let me come to the part where Jesus says something really outrageous. The disciples are filled with grief at his going. And yet he says in verse 7 that it is for your good that I'm going away. Do you see that there in verse 7? He says, it's for your good that I'm going away. Now, it sounds like one of those lame things said in the breakup scene of a romantic comedy, doesn't it? As they end the romance and break their lover's heart, they say, oh, it's better for you not to have me in your life. And yet Jesus says this with great emphasis and great seriousness. Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. What can he possibly mean by this? Well, he lets us know in the very same verse, in verse 7, the reason why it's better for him to go away is because he will send the Holy Spirit. Unless I go away, he says, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So if you can imagine how good it would be, how much you would love it to have Jesus right here with you. I mean, just imagine if Jesus were here in the flesh in church today. We would love that, right? We would love that. Now consider this. Jesus says that what we have as Christians, with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside each one of us and and, and gathering with us as we gather here today in Jesus' name, Jesus says that is actually better than having him physically present. And Jesus will go on uh, here in John chapter 16 to explain two of the reasons why it is better that Jesus went away and sent the Spirit. The first of those reasons is is point two of my outline, if you're following the outline. Uh, It's the convicting work of the Spirit. Uh, Our translation says the Spirit will prove the world to be in the wrong. But it's the idea of convicting, not, not convicting a criminal, but giving a person a sense of conviction, right? It's the idea of seizing a person's conscience, When a person hears the gospel and the spirit is doing his saving work, then the person's conscience is seized. Do you remember that happening to you when you first became a Christian? 
your conscience being seized? Can you think of times throughout your Christian life when you felt a real conviction? Perhaps it was just a simple thing like, I've really got to go and talk to that person. Or, Or maybe it was, I've really got to do something about this persistent sin which is in my life. Uh, perhaps it was a conviction that I really must go to church today, uh, even when I, it's something that I hadn't been planning. Convictions like these are a work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus outlines three particular convictions that the Spirit will work in the world. The first is in verse 9. It says there that the Spirit will convict the world about sin because people do not believe in Jesus. You know when we hear a news report about a person who was sentenced for a terrible crime and sometimes we hear those awful words, those horrible words, that the person showed no remorse. It's dreadful, isn't it? to think that a person could show no remorse for for a horrible crime that they have done. But this also shows how powerless a human being is to bring about remorse in another. Even with all the grandeur of the courtroom, with the, the wig and the gavel and the attendance and all the power to punish, the judge sitting up there in that courtroom is powerless to make the accused feel remorse. The chemistry of the accused's heart is something which is not accessible to the judge or any human. Well, it's also horrible, isn't it, to think that people could completely ignore their loving creator all their life and feel no remorse. But that comes naturally to us, doesn't it? These words of Jesus are a promise that the Spirit will do what you and I can't do, which is to make a person realize their own guilt as a rebel against God. This is a work that the Spirit has done in in each one of us who's become a Christian, to make a person realize that sin really is real and horrible. And that it places me in great need. Well, the second aspect of the Holy Spirit's convicting work is is in verse 10. It says he'll convict the world about righteousness because Jesus says there, I'm going to the Father. You and I are pretty good at self-justification. Because when we compare ourselves with other people, we're not too bad. But when Jesus walked on earth, his disciples saw for themselves in his life what righteous living really is. And they were convicted. They saw that in Jesus there is a person who has no sin. They saw that there is a standard of righteousness that goes beyond what we see in in all of our fellow human beings. Now when Jesus goes into heaven... Uh, and is no longer on earth to be able to show people that righteousness in the flesh, the Holy Spirit, who will be in the world, he will continue to convict the world of this fact, that there is this truly godly standard of righteousness from which we all fall so short. 
Well, finally, he says in verse 11 that the Spirit will convict the world about judgment because the prince of this world, that means the devil, now stands condemned. God will judge this world. Every single one of us will be judged. There will be no exemption for the rich and powerful. There will be no exemption for the poor and oppressed. All people ought to have a holy fear about the day of judgment. But this is another fact which can only be imparted to a person's conscience by the Holy Spirit. Uh, You and I, ordinary humans, we we can't seize a person's conscience with the realisation of judgment. Uh, Even angels can't necessarily do it. Think about the angels who came uh, to warn Lot and his family about the judgment that was going to come on their city of Sodom. And Lot, he believed he went to his sons-in-law, the men who were meant to marry his daughters, and he, and he said, look, we've got to get out of this place. God's going to judge it. Do you remember the way Lot's sons-in-law responded? Genesis 19.14. They thought it was a joke. Coming judgment, they thought it was a joke. Believe me, I know from experience because I have tried. No human can seize another human's conscience and convict them about the coming judgment. But the Holy Spirit can do that. So are you now beginning to see why it's better that Jesus went away and sent the Spirit I mean, think about it like this. How many converts did Jesus get in his own earthly life? Not that many. He had the 12 apostles, of whom one turned out to be not such a convert. He had a number of their relatives. He had a number of other disciples. Luke tells us that shortly after Jesus' ascension, there were 120 believers or so. Three years of ministry by the Son of God, the Son of God, 120 believers. Jesus did not get an overwhelming number of converts in his own earthly life. Phew. That makes me feel that I'm in good company. But on the day that the Holy Spirit descended on the church, the people were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And 3,000 believers were added to their number that day. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't do that every day. But his power is clearly demonstrated in the hundreds of millions of Christians around the world who have been convicted about sin and righteousness and judgment and have turned to Jesus Christ. And we must pray for the Holy Spirit to do his convicting work because this is work which we cannot do, isn't it? We need to pray for this work to be done not only on those around us, although the need is obvious, but also on ourselves. Why not ask that God send his spirit that your heart might be seized, your conscience might be seized with the reality of sin, with the true standard of righteousness and with the unavoidable fact 
that God will judge the world. Well, Jesus mentions here a second aspect of the Spirit's work, and I'm going to talk about this only very briefly. This is the truth-giving work of the Spirit in verses 12 to 15. And when Jesus says in verse 12 that he has more to say, he's saying, well, there's going to be more teaching from me after I have ascended into heaven. And that was going to come by the apostles, by means of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth. And that is how the New Testament came to be written down for us. Because, of course, Jesus never wrote anything down, but it was through his apostles who wrote down the New Testament that we have the the Bible that we have today. And those words come, as Jesus says here, direct from the Father. Jesus really speaks to us. He really is with us. And can I say to you here today, I, I feel and experience that. I know that he is with me. Although I certainly need to be reminded and to exercise faith to hold on to the fact that having the Spirit is actually better than having Jesus here physically. On the outline, I've had an aside. Does the Spirit lead individuals into all truth? Or or, or is that only about the writing of the Scriptures? Uh, My sense is that this verse here is mainly about the fact that the Spirit would guide the apostles to write the Scriptures. But there are also passages, Romans 8, for example, which speak about individual Christians being led by the Spirit. When we're believers... The Holy Spirit leads us through the wilderness of this life like the pillar of cloud led the Israelites through the desert and he is with us and he will land us safe on Canaan's side. We began by considering just how vulnerable followers of Jesus are in the world because the idea is out there because the devil has put it out there that it would be a good idea to destroy Jesus' followers. Not every non-Christian holds that view, of course, but the idea is out there. But Jesus taught us, his disciples, that he would never leave us alone, that he would send the Spirit to convict the world, to show the world that it is wrong, that Jesus is right about sin and righteousness and judgment and the spirit has been doing that work and our gathering here is evidence of this but boy do we need to pray that the spirit would convict the world and convict us jesus also taught that he would be with his apostles and lead them as they wrote the scriptures in another gospel in matthew's gospel as jesus left his disciples he said Behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. How good it is to have Jesus with us. It is so good. It is so good to be a follower of Jesus and to have his promise that he will not leave us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you sent your Son and we thank you that the Son has sent the Spirit to be with us and that this, uh, if we would only believe and trust it, is even better than Jesus being with us in the flesh. Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask you to please help us receive that truth 
that we might truly believe in the Holy Spirit, as we say in the Creed. And Father, we do pray especially for your Spirit to do the convicting work that we've spoken about in our own hearts, that we be convicted afresh about sin and righteousness in the coming judgment. But also, Father, that you might do that convicting work in the world because we see the desperate need for it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.